Interesting. So we're going to enter a time of teaching now. Um, we do this every week at Sedaris. We come, we're a community gathered around God's Word. So if you've got a Bible, would you grab it and turn to 1 Corinthians? We're in the second week of a brand new sermon series walking through 1 Corinthians. If you don't have a Bible, you'll find one in the seat back in front of you. Looks like this, a black version, and you can turn to page 1011. 1011 is where I will be uh, reading from today. We're going to be looking at the first nine verses of 1 Corinthians. Now, let me give you a little bit of a review in case this is your first week so that you can kind of understand where we're going with this series. So we'll be in it for a while. Here's a letter written by the Apostle Paul, the Apostle Paul, to a church that he helped plant. So he was there for about the first year and a half of the church that he helped plant. So he came to Corinth because Corinth was a major city in the Roman Empire. In fact, it was just like one of the big five cities in the whole Roman Empire. In fact, you may not know this. I didn't even mention this last week. Corinth was five times bigger than Athens. Can you believe that? Five times bigger than Athens. Now, uh, before your mind explodes, like that was only 100,000 people. Cities were smaller back then. But five times bigger than Athens. We tend to think of Athens as sort of the biggest city in Greece. But Corinth was the major hub. It was a port city. It actually had ports on either side um, of the city. And there was actually a four-mile wide land bridge. And because it was very dangerous to... Um, think of like the Panama Canal. Now there's actually a canal there at Corinth that cuts through the isthmus, the four-mile isthmus, so boats can go straight through. Back then, Nero, the emperor, wanted to build one. He started it, and then he got killed, so <laughs> he didn't finish it. And so they used to take boats and literally wheel them down this uh, land bridge to the other side of the isthmus. It's much safer because so there's bays on both sides. So it's a huge port city. You've got to understand this. And so people from all over the Roman Empire would come to this city to find jobs, to do trade, and also they'd pass through the city, like all port cities. Think Pirates of the Caribbean. Okay, so port cities had a particular reputation because sailors were coming in and out. It was like a home away from home. There was anonymity. Um, the comings and goings. And so you could imagine what kind of reputation Corinth had. In fact, there was a verb that, or an adjective that came to be called to Corinthianize, which meant basically to indulge in sexual immorality. Interesting. So this is, this is sort of a, a big, bustling, rugged city. I was trying to think of what would be a good analogy in America. Maybe something like a San Francisco. I would have said Seattle, but maybe not big enough. Corinth was one of the biggest cities around, and uh, Seattle's getting there. But think San Francisco. It was newer money. So a lot of people had kind of come up from lower social levels, and through this trade of this port city, they became rich. So it wasn't old money, maybe like in, from Athens, it was like new money. So we'll get into that as we get into this letter. This created all sorts of interesting dynamics within the church that was founded there. 
And when we say the church, we're talking maybe 100 people to give you just sort of an idea. But there were people from every socioeconomic class in the church in Corinth. And how do they live and do community together? So we'll get into all of that in the book of 1 Corinthians. So Paul writes this letter to a church that he helped to start after he'd left the church. And he was actually in Ephesus, which was across the Aegean Sea. He wrote it from there because he'd heard reports about the trajectory of the church. That the church had sort of taken on the flavor of the culture. And he realized that's not the way to glorify Christ Jesus, their Savior. And so last week, we talked about synchronized walking. (laughs) We talked about uh, European starling murmurations. Throw up that slide here, Ty. You have the European, uh, these are birds that create quite an amazing formation when they're in sync, in step with one another. We talked about marching bands. So if you didn't hear last week, I really highly recommend going and talking about it because I gave an overview of, of the whole sort of big idea of the sermon series, which is this. So if you don't fully understand this, go listen to the sermon as I break it down last week. We said the church of Jesus Christ was designed by God and inspired through the Holy Spirit to do what? To move in step with the peculiar wisdom of Christ. I think that's what 1 Corinthians all is about. It's about moving in step with the peculiar wisdom of Christ. And what we talked about was that this was not happening in this church which Paul so dearly loved. They were falling short. There was division. There was sexual misconduct. They were suing one another. They were unruly segregated in their worship. It wasn't going well. They were out of step. And so Paul is going to write them this letter to encourage them to get in step once again. Now, if you knew just how bad it was, and it'll become more clear, so you just got to trust me on this, you'll start to see like, like there were people from Corinth, remember this is the land of anything goes, that were watching the church and the way they conducting themselves and saying, that's gross. <laughs> they were saying things like that. So it was bad. Now, once we see as we go how bad it was, what might be really interesting to you, because it was to me, is how the letter starts off. Like in the first nine verses, you might not think things were going poorly. So let's read those nine verses, and then I'll talk about a really important principle that I think Paul models for us here when we seek to, to walk in step with the peculiar wisdom of Christ. So you ready? Here we go. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, the big one, starting in verse 1, the little one. Here we go. Paul, called, by an, call, uh, called as an apostle of Christ Jesus by God's will, and Sothenes, our brother. So unlike the way we write letters today, the way they wrote letters back then is they sign it up front, not at the end. <laughs> So they put their signature up front, and Sosthenes was, uh, Paul had really bad eyesight, most people think, and so he would dictate the letter, and Sosthenes was his scribe, he'd write it down. So Paul's saying, I'm an apostle of Jesus Christ, I'm an ascent one, I am in a unique category in that God has set me aside to preach the good news to Jews and Gentiles, but primarily Paul's assignment was to the Gentiles. 
by God's will, he says. Verse 2. To the church of God at Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called as saints with all those in every place who call on the name of Jesus Christ our Lord, both their Lord and ours. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I always thank my God for you because of the grace of God given to you in Christ Jesus, that you were enriched in every way, in all speech and all knowledge. In this way, the testimony about Christ was confirmed among you so that you do not lack any spiritual gift as you eagerly wait for the revelation of our Lord Jesus Christ. He will also strengthen you to the end so that you will be blameless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful. You were called by him into fellowship with his son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. Well, that doesn't sound so mean. (laughs) That doesn't sound like a corrective letter, which is what 1 Corinthians is. Seems like things are going pretty well. What's going on here? What's going on? Now, Paul uses this element of a Greco-Roman letter. It was, it was common in that day to have a greeting up front, as I said. This is who's writing. This is me greeting you. And even a thanksgiving. And Paul does this in seven of his letters. Paul's the author of half of the New Testament. So, seven of his letters he gives something of a thanksgiving element. Now, this one is unique, and even the way did, uh, Paul did thanksgiving in his letters is different than the way you would see this in the rest of the Greco-Roman world. It's very unique. And he's going to do two things in this letter. The first is he's going to show his deep pastoral concern. And the second thing is he's actually going to teach something in the thanksgiving. And that was unique. Um, Think about it like this. You may have noticed this if you've been here a while or other pastors that you've uh, heard from. You'll be like, I'll finish my sermon and I'll start to pray. And what you realize is, wait, Dave, you're still preaching. (laughs) Well, that's correct. Sometimes I forget that I wanted to say something. So don't tune out the prayer. You should never tune out the prayer. We're talking to God. But pastors and preachers, well, they'll add a little uh, didactic into a prayer, or Paul will do this in his thanksgiving. He's both giving thanks, but he's also trying to teach something. So we want to pay attention. We don't want to skip past this. He's saying something really important. And so we'll break this down. The sermon will go like this. I'll talk about the deep pastoral concern that's in this thanksgiving, and I'll talk about the new teaching that Paul is giving through the thanksgiving. So we don't want to tune out. We don't want to read past the thanksgivings that Paul has in all of his letters. He's saying something really important that's going to set up the rest of what he's going to correct in the way they were living out or moving out of step with the peculiar wisdom of Christ. So what does Paul do? Deep pastoral concern. I hope you feel his heart here. I always thank my God for you because of the grace of God given to you in Christ Jesus. You feel that? He's not just saying this. He is so thankful for what God has done in their midst, even though they are walking waywardly. He's so thankful for them. 
This will make, make more sense as we go through the letter because he's got some hard things to say. Some very hard, challenging correctives to give to them. But he thanks God for them. So what's Paul doing? What exactly is he doing? I call it the compliment sandwich. How many know what a compliment sandwich is? And how many of you use the compliment sandwich often when you give corrective or critique to somebody that you love? Right? Compliment sandwich goes like this. Man, Allie does this to me all the time, my wife. Man, great sermon, great sermon, Dave, great sermon. Now, there's a few things here that, that you probably shouldn't have said. But really loved that jacket you were wearing. <laughs> That's the compliment sandwich. See, oh, I'm feeling pretty good going in. I'm ready to hear what she has to say. She lets me off easy at the end. Okay, that's the compliment sandwich. And Paul is just using the compliment sandwich here because he, he knows he's got some hard words for his brothers and sisters. Now, this principle I want us all to learn from. Because it's not that we never say a hard word to someone we love. Particularly with those of us who are seeking to be in step with the peculiar wisdom of Christ. There's going to be times where we need to give a corrective word. But we need to make sure people know that we love them. That we're giving them this word because we're thankful for what God has already done in their life. And Paul does that. And he does that by seeing someone's potential. Do you do this? Do you look at somebody and see their potential? Are you able to look past where they are currently in this moment and see where they could be because you know that the grace of God has already been given to them? Are you able to see their potential? The Apostle Paul sees their potential. He says, you've been enriched in every way. You lack nothing. No spiritual gift. You, you guys are ready to go. You're not waiting on anything from the Lord. The positives of being able to, here's the positive. If you're able to do this, if you're able to look at some, even somebody who may be wallowing in their own sin, can't get out of their own way, struggling to see their own folly, but you can see their potential, here's what's going to happen. They're going to see themselves the way that God sees them. They're going to see themselves the way that God sees them. You say, like, well, people know how great they are. No, they don't. They have no idea. Or they think they're as good as they'll ever get. They're as mature as they'll ever get. And you help see with the eyes of faith something that they can't see. And it gets them unstuck. And when you see their potential, they'll know that you're for them. Even when you have hard things to say. They'll know that you're trying to see something that they cannot see. A blind spot. And that they'll know that God sees them as full of potential. So I really encourage, I want you to live like this towards people. For some of you it's going to be very natural. You're like a natural, you see the potential in everyone. I, I tend to naturally see potential in everyone. But there's a downside. So to live this way, to live like Paul, 
is modeling for us. We just have to know. The downside is this, because this happens to me all the time. You see all this potential in somebody. You speak it into their life that they might embrace it as their new vision. You're giving them a dream. But guess what happens? They fall short of that vision, that potential, and it's very painful. You just got to know as you step into this, you could call it dreaming for other people, it's potentially very painful as you see them not meet what you know is a realistic expectation. What's the greatest example of this sort of corporately in our country? We're about to celebrate it in the near future. I want somebody to literally say it out loud. Dr. Martin Luther King. 1963, he had a dream for America, about what America could be. He was doing what Paul is doing. Pretty good chance he probably learned it from Paul. Why? Because he was a preacher of the word, a pastor of God's people. People forget that. I actually listened to the whole sermon, 17-minute sermon. We only remember the end of it. He had a lot of other things, good things to say. And then I listened to another 42-minute presentation, the last, one, the last talk he gave before he was assassinated. This man had a gift of painting a picture, giving a dream for a group of people so that they knew what to aim for. That's what the I Had a Dream speech is. He knew it wasn't happening, but he said, this could be us. Sixty years later, we're still, what, falling short of that dream. But we still encourage our country, our church, to strive after what was a, a good dream. I think a dream rooted in the character, very much in step with the character of God, the character of the church at its best, and the message of the gospel. So this is what you're doing. This is what Paul's doing. He's dreaming out loud for the Corinthians. Not because they're there. They're a long way from there. But he's putting the right vision in their mind. You could be all these things. It's a beautiful thing that he's doing here. I hope you have someone in your life who does this for you, who dreams for you when you can't dream, who sees you for what you are from God's perspective. It's a beautiful thing. Now, I just want to give a little caveat here. What this is and what this is not. This is not like name it and claim it theology, right? Have you heard about this? Or like you maybe heard of the secret. Have you heard of the secret? The secret is this sort of thing. It's like the law of attraction where if you just think about something long enough, you can have it. Well, Christians have a form of that. It's called name it and claim it theology where if we, just, if we just have enough faith, if we just think about it, if we just put a picture of, you know, the Range Rover up on our cubicle wall, we'll get it if we just think about it enough. Now, that is not what Paul's doing here. He's not just sort of naively dreaming about what they could be. He knows what they could be because God, through his spirit, is giving him a vision for what the church in Corinth could be. He's seeing from God's perspective. So God just doesn't want to give us everything or anything that we want. He has specific things he wants us to become and wants us to be. And Paul is tapping into that through the power of the Spirit as an apostle, and he's giving them a picture, a dream that they can seek after. 
So I hope, I hope you see just, it's a really beautiful thing what he's doing here. And we can do the same thing in life. Let me give you a few quick examples. How we can have deep pastoral concern for the ones that we love. Think about a friend who may be dating someone. Okay? You can say this. Just like Paul. I see you. I see you as a confident, beautiful, powerful woman. I see your gifts and they come alive in this way, in that way, whatever. And then, and then like Paul will do in this letter, he'll say, but the guy you're dating now, I don't think he brings that out of you. I don't think he helps you get to the potential that God has placed in your soul. I love you. And so I want you to get back in step with God and perhaps you need to move away from that bad relationship. Could be a job. Could be a job. You have a friend who's in a job and you say, listen, I've seen you and I see you and your gifts and your talents and I see them coming alive alive through your vocation. But just to be honest right now, it feels like this job is killing you. This job is not tapping into the deepest parts of who you are. I'd love to dream with you about perhaps a new vocation, a new company to work for. You could do this with a friend who's hanging out with uh, a friend group. And you see, listen, this is who you are. I see you leading. I see you laughing. I see you confident. But when you're with this group of friends, I don't see any of those things. I see you're cynical. I see that you just follow the crowd. I see that you're always insecure. And I don't want that for you because this is who I see you to be. You see that? That's what Paul is doing for the Corinthians. And we can do that for people in our lives. Maybe you need somebody to speak into your life. You may need to ask for it. You may need to, to, to get together with some people at the church, or maybe you start going to a cohort, and you say, listen, that thing Dave talked about, I feel like I need it, because I don't feel like I am who I am supposed to be. Could somebody get to know me and see me from God's perspective so that I might get out of this rut? It's just such a beautiful thing. I don't, I don't want to... That's the main thing that the the Apostle Paul is doing for this church that he loves. He's having a dream for them of what they can become because they already have the key ingredient, which is the grace of God. They've received that already, and now they need to let that grace fill every part of their life. So the second thing that I want to do is look at the actual content of what Paul is saying. The main reason he's saying it is because he's, he's speaking a dream over them so that they might strive after it. And so what's the content of that dream? Here we go. What would we fail to learn if we move straight past this thanksgiving in the letter? Here's what we'd fail to learn. Look at verse 2. Paul says this. To the church of God at Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, those set apart, called as what? Saints, with those in every place. So he's calling them saints. 
Now, again, that, it would, <laughs> maybe you come from another part of the country. Maybe you have friends in other parts of the country. But one of the amazing things about the book of Corinthians, and we looked at it last week in the book of Acts that talks about the narrative, uh, Paul literally has a vision, and God says to him, many of my people are in this city. Many of my people are in the city. And I said, that's like Seattle. Sometimes people look at Seattle and say, there's probably no, none of God's people <laughs> in Seattle. I have people call me being like, when are you going to get out of Seattle? I was like, God said there's, his people are here and they need to be ministered to. Paul's saying, even in Corinth, you are saints. You are holy ones. Corinthians? Holy ones? Yes. Sanctified in Christ Jesus. What an amazing thing to say about someone. And all people who have received the grace of God, which is salvation in Christ, that you've accepted the work of Jesus on your behalf on the cross, you are saints. That's what the Bible teaches. Every single follower of Jesus who puts their trust in him is a saint, a holy one. No matter what city you live in, no matter what your past is, no matter your current struggles in walking in step with the wisdom of Christ, you are already holy ones. Amazing. And Paul makes it very clear that they are already saints. Now, what else does he say? Verse, drop down to verse 4. He says, I always thank God for you because of the grace of God given to you in Christ Jesus. Then he goes on to say, you were enriched in Christ in every way. And then he goes on to say, you do not lack anything. You do not lack any spiritual gift. Now, this will become clear because one of the things that he'll talk about later in the letter is that the Corinthians were full of all the charismatic gifts. They were alive in all ways, but they were not expressing their gifts in an orderly manner. They were competing almost. You have this gift, I have this gift. We all got to show our gifts all at the same time at worship, and it was unruly and rowdy and not orderly at all. And Paul's going to come and he says, listen, that is not in step with the organized peculiar wisdom of Christ. You guys need to work together as one body, he'll say, so that you move in unison to create a beautiful picture. So he's, again, he's teasing what he's going to talk about, and he's acknowledging, you guys have been given incredible gifts. Guess what, Sedaris Church? We have incredible gifts here at our church. We have been enriched in every way by Christ Jesus. Yet we're still working to get all of our gifts working in unison together. But he's, he's celebrating the fact that they've got all this raw gifting from God. And he'll come along then later and correct the way they're misusing that gifting. So what he's saying is you have everything necessary to move in step with the peculiar wisdom of, of, of Christ so that the glory of God is made known in this city. This international city, this, this, this city of sin, this city of debauchery. This, you will reveal the true light of Christ. You've got everything you need. It's amazing. You've got a great future ahead of you, is what he's saying. You lack nothing. And that's important to hear, that we lack nothing. Look what he says here. He says, he will, uh, verse 8, he will also strengthen you to the end. 
to the end. Paul does this a lot in his thanksgivings. He says, we need to have the end in mind when we're working towards this in the present. We don't just sit around and wait for the end, but we've got to have the end in mind. What is the end? The end in mind is eagerly awaiting the revelation of Jesus Christ our Lord. There is coming a day when Jesus will return, and we need to remember that because it's hard to live in step with him now. We wonder, is it even worth it? Is it in vain? We talked about that last week. And he says, no, it's not in vain. He says, with the end in mind, God will strengthen you to walk in step with him today so that you will be blameless. In fact, other translations will say, because you are blameless. Interesting. So why is it that Paul can talk like this? Why can he have such lofty hopes and dreams for these people? When they clearly haven't proven it, he's only been gone for about a year and a half, maybe two and a half years. (laughs) He's like, it's already falling apart. Why is he so optimistic? Why is he so hopeful? Is it naive? How can he claim these truths about the future? How can he know that they will be strengthened? How can he know that they will step into this enriching that they've already had and become everything that God has? How can he know that? Well, in a sense, he knows that because he knows that on that day when Christ returns, they will be blameless. I say, what do you mean? When is it that they will be blameless? He says, in the day of the Lord Jesus Christ. What is this day? What is he talking about, this day? Now, this is one of the really important background pieces that you need to understand about Corinth. Um. And Paul, it's almost, he definitely had this in mind. He definitely had this in mind when he was saying several things to the Corinthians. You've got to remember, he lived there for a year and a half. Again, it's not as big of a city as Seattle. It's 100,000 people. Everybody would have gone to all the common places. And there was a place in the Agora, which is like the marketplace, where there was something called the Bema Seat. And the Bema Seat was where the proconsul or the highest-ranking Roman official would come into town, and it's sort of an elevated platform. You may have seen this in movies, and they sit there, and they watch and observe what's going on. It's also the place where they'd come and do public presentations of commendation of, of war heroes or people that are doing a good job, and they'd give them medals, things like that. And it would be the place where they would enact judgment, where they would condemn a criminal to prison or death, And it was all there in the public square. And Paul has this imagery in mind in several places. In fact, I I, want to show this to you. Show the map here, Ty. We'll show the wider map. Um, Well, here's a map of Greece, and you can kind of see where the isthmus is between Corinth and Athens. It's a very narrow, only four miles wide. But go, go to the next slide of the wider view of the city of Corinth. Go to the other one. So so here's a a remodeling of what the city of Corinth would have looked like at Paul's time. Now, over here in the left-hand corner, you see this sort of large open area. That's the Agora. That's the marketplace where everybody would come, and there's like they've excavated uh, like 40 different shops that were there, and there were probably more. And uh, now zoom in a little bit, and I'm going to zoom in on that area on the left. And you see uh, right here where this uh, number four is? That's the Bema seat. That's where 
the proconsul, when he'd come into town, he'd sit and he'd observe. And it's also where he'd enact judgments. The governor of the land. Now, you can turn with me if you want, but 2 Corinthians, so Paul wrote several letters to the church in Corinth, but the letter he wrote after this one, if you go to 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 9 and 10, there's a very famous passage here. And it's going to take the Greek word bema and translate it judgment. So let's read it. Chapter 5, verse, starting in verse 9. Therefore, whether we are at home or away, talking about home being heaven or away here on earth, he says we make it our aim to be pleasing to him. To be pleasing to God. To be pleasing to our Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 10. For we must all appear... Before the, what's that word? Bema seat of Christ. Not the Bema seat of the governor. Gallio was the governor at that time of this province. But the Bema seat of Christ, the judgment seat of Christ. So that each may be repaid for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. Now, hang with me here. Paul clearly here has this idea in mind, and he's knowing that everybody will know exactly what he's talking about, that there's coming a day where Christ will be the one sitting on that Bema seat, on that judgment seat, and he's picturing, which is pictured elsewhere in Scripture, of us standing before Christ at the end of the age to give an account for who we are and what we've done. And early in this letter, this first letter, He's talking about the same thing. He doesn't use the term Bema seat, but he's talking about the day of the Lord, which always in the, in the Bible means the judgment day of the Lord. And he's saying on that day, you will be blameless. Okay. How can he be so optimistic? Is it true? Did they live this out? The answer is no. So how can he say, is he therefore lying, is scripture lying, that they are blameless? And the answer is no. He's not lying. It is true. They will stand before the Bema seat of Christ blameless, but not because of what they have or have not done, but why? Look at the next line here, verse 9. Because... God is faithful. So all this optimism, all this dreaming, all, all of this blameless talk, Paul knows that they, as the people of God, will stand before Christ blameless because God is faithful. Not because he's overly optimistic about their ability to live without sin, but he knows that God is faithful and God will present them before the Bema seat Clean in Christ. That's the gospel. That's the truth. Adam and Eve sinned. They fell short. But God was faithful. Abraham sinned. He offered his wife up to be sold to save his own skin. But God was faithful. Israel worshipped other gods, grumbled against their own God who gave them everything. Yet God was faithful. 
The disciples who walked with Jesus saw his miracles, saw his resurrection even. They stumbled. They fell short. They denied Jesus at times. But God was faithful. You see, the overarching message of Scripture is that human beings fall short, but God is faithful. And so anyone who puts themselves underneath God's rule and reign and in his family, they, in the end, will be blameless. Why? Because of what Christ Jesus has done for us, on our behalf, while we were still sinners, knowing we'd still sin after receiving his grace. And so Paul very confidently can present this future picture where they will be blameless before the beam of seat of Christ because God is faithful and has been faithful in sending the Son to be our sacrifice, to step into our place, to clothe us with his righteousness because he knows we won't be righteous. So this is so important because all of Paul's correction that he's about to give them is coming off of the tail end of this statement that God is faithful and you will be blameless in the end. This is the gospel. That the resurrection proved once and for all that when Christ said it is finished on the cross, it was truly finished. It's not hanging in the balance. Whether the Corinthians can learn from Paul's letter and actually make the necessary adjustments to walk in step with Christ does not affect this truth in the first nine verses. They are the holy ones. They will stand blameless before Christ because God is faithful to his people. That's an incredible promise. And therefore makes correcting language, which, which is going to feel intense, it feels different, doesn't it? Because you're not correcting so that you will be saved, but because you are already saved. You are not saved by good works, you are saved for good works. Another way to say this, you're playing with house money. God is faithful, meaning you can rack up no debt that he cannot pay. But because you're playing with house money, you can move freely without this fear of stepping in the wrong place and messing up God's plan. You cannot. It's already done because God is faithful. The work of Christ is finished on the cross. You cannot lose your salvation. It's finished in Christ. So we stand there, blameless. So what does it mean here then in 2 Corinthians, like we just read, that we should live a life pleasing to him? What is that all about? If he's already done the work, how can I be pleasing to him? This is the beauty of it. This is the beauty of it. Though our moving in step with the peculiar wisdom of Christ is at times difficult and we always fall short of it, when we attempt, when we try... When we are filled and enriched in every way, when we're abounding in God's grace and overflows in us, when we're striving as Paul is going to push them to strive in this letter, we can know that it's pleasing to the Lord. Not pleasing because it will save us, but pleasing because the one who saved us loves when we reciprocate his love through his spirit to the world. This is, this is so... Such a big idea. Let me give you, I had so many great illustrations last week. I got one great illustration this week. So tune in right here. Lock in. This is what it's like. How many of you have ever learned to, to, to uh, line dance? 
So you go like this, you know what I'm talking about? And then you go cha-cha-cha, and then you, and then you go. Raise your hand if you've line danced. Keep your hand raised if you're not very good at it. <laughs> yeah, okay, that's like all of us. You're looking to your left and looking to your right when you're learning to line dance. Just like we talked about last week. It's how you sort of stay in step. You're looking to your left. Am I doing it right? Am I doing it right? You know? And, and you will have absolutely no fun line dancing, particularly when you're new at it, if you believe that failure in your line dancing will result in eternal death. <laughs> okay? Like, it is no fun. You're going to be like... You're going to be sweating. You're already going to be sweating. You're going to be sweating so hard and shaking so much trying to get the steps right if you think this is your eternal death. Now, let's dial back the intensity. Even if it's not eternal death, if you think the girl that invited you to the line dancing club, she'll never talk to you again if you're bad at line dancing. That is not fun, and I have been there. Luckily, I'm, I'm pretty good, as you can tell, at line dancing. I love to clap. I've got pretty good rhythm. But, like, if you think it always, like, you will not get to a second date with her if you are terrible at line dancing. Line dancing is no fun, right? Now imagine this. What if you knew you already had eternal life? What if you knew for a fact that that girl was going to marry you? Like, you had a DeLorean and went in a time machine and you knew it was going to happen no matter what happened that night. You know how much fun you'd have? You'd have so much fun. You'd screw up, you'd fall short, you'd probably knock some people over, but you wouldn't be terrified. You'd have a whole lot of fun because you have assurance that your ability to stay in step is not the reason that you get another date. Line dancing becomes fun. And for all of you who have been line dancing and it was terrifying, it's because the world doesn't operate on this wisdom. This is the peculiar wisdom of Christ, that it doesn't matter if you're any good. You get a second date and a third date, and for eternity you'll be married to Christ, your Savior. That kind of line dancing is fun. That kind of learning, somebody saying you're doing it wrong. You've got to put the left foot back first. You've got to step two times, not three. Like, that just is painful to hear if you think your eternity rests on that. But when you know it doesn't, it's fun to learn. I want to get in step. I want to do this, no matter how much natural rhythm you have or not. That's what Paul's saying. It's finished. You will be blameless because you've already been given. That's why I thank God all the time that he has given you grace in Jesus Christ. Grace is not earned salvation. It's free. It's a gift. And look at verse 9. God is faithful you were called by him into fellowship with his son, Jesus. You know what fellowship means? Koinonia is the Greek word. Fellowship means close relationship, partnership, participation, sharing. God's son has invited you in. He's invited you into that. And he wants you to participate with him in the things he's doing, the dance he's doing in this world. And that reminds me of what I think Paul is expressing here, which is the gift of encouragement. It's one of the gifts in another of Paul's letter, the spiritual gifts that are Holy Spirit-specific gifts given to people, and the gift of encouragement's in that list in Romans chapter 12. And the word encouragement literally means to come alongside, 
or to pair up with. The word is paraclete. And what's interesting is that Jesus used that same word, paraclete, when he talked about, when I go, I'll send a paraclete, a helper, a comforter, which is, he's talking about the Holy Spirit. So the gift of encouragement is like getting to be partner with the Holy Spirit to come alongside and be like the Holy Spirit in someone's life to help them move along, to grow tenderly towards Christ Jesus, his character, his people, his church, his gospel message. And one, as I was studying, one of the things that was so interesting is I don't think Paul was always good at this. I think Paul grew in his ability to encourage. Here's why I think that. Um, Paul started his journey. He, w- he was murdering Christians He encountered the risen Lord Jesus on the road to Damascus, and he was brought into the church. And they ministered to him, they cared to him. And there was one man named Barnabas who stood up for Paul. And everyone back at the church in Jerusalem was terrified of Paul because he's out there arresting Christians, ultimately leading to their imprisonment and their death, and they were terrified of him. And Barnabas came alongside of him, walked alongside, put his armor on Paul and said, you can trust this man. I've been with him for the last several months. He's one of us now. He came alongside and encouraged Paul and encouraged others to bring Paul in. And Barnabas' real name is not Barnabas. Did you know this? It's Joseph. His nickname was Barnabas. You know what Barnabas means? Son of encouragement. So Paul, early in his ministry, had the son of encouragement, the guy whose nickname was encouragement, come alongside him and walk and show him. And then Paul and Barnabas went on a missionary journey all over the Mediterranean world. And they had a great time. And they even brought this guy named John Mark along with them. John Mark ultimately, eventually ended up writing the Gospel of Mark. We've preached a series on that. So he did some cool things. But there was a moment when John Mark got scared and John Mark bailed on him. And he left them. And Paul was upset. Because Paul tends to get upset. And guess what? Paul said later on, John Mark wanted to come back on the road with them, with Barnabas and him. And Paul said, no way. I can't trust this guy. Guess what Barnabas did? Okay, Paul, you go your way. I'll take John Mark. I'll put my arm around John Mark, and we'll go do things. Well, John Mark ended up okay, right? Wrote one of the Gospels. And I think Paul learned something that day. It's understandable that Paul couldn't trust him. But Paul saw the son of encouragement teach him how to encourage even those people who were living in fear or living out of the will of God. He learned something that way. And later we see Paul actually saying, go get John Mark, bring him with him. He's got tons of gifts. So Paul got it. And he learned by watching the son of encouragement, Barnabas, learn how to see somebody even in their weakened, um, imperfect state, to see the potential in them and give them a second chance. That's what Barnabas did for John Mark. And Paul learned. Paul learned what that means. And the old Paul may not have given first, the Corinthian church this second, third, fourth chance that he's going to give them. But he learned encouragement. This is why I bring that up. Whether it's natural for you to be an encourager, whether you even believe you have the spiritual gifts, we should all seek all the gifts. And I hope that Sedaris Church becomes known, has the reputation as a church that is continually growing in our gift of encouragement. 
to put our arms alongside people who have fallen short, who are living in the ways of the world in which they are surrounded, that aren't walking in step with Jesus, and put our arms around them and say, hey, we love you, you're holy, you're anointed by Christ, you've been given gifts, I see you, you will be blameless at the bema seat of Christ, and we are here for you to help you get back in step. That that is the reputation of this church. A church full of Barnabases, of Pauls who once were really bad at encouraging and lended, tended towards maybe truth, but now are full of grace and truth. That this church would be a church full of encouragement. Encouragement built on the notion of second chance. Encouragement informed by the finished work of Christ on the cross. Encouragement bathed in the fellowship of presence and friendship. Encouragement fueled by the Holy Spirit, both grace and truth. Encouragement rooted in the faithfulness of God and encouragement seeking the pleasing of our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. An encouragement that never falls short of true concern for sin, true correction of error, and true exhortation to the right kind of living as the people of God. So that all God's children grow ever closer and move ever in sync and in step with the peculiar wisdom of Christ. That's my dream, (laughs) that I pray over you, that we become that kind of church. Let's pray.